Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune, covering breaking news and current events as it pertains to Bible prophecy. In effect, chronicling the coming of Christ the King. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this special editorial edition of the End Time Tribune. Let us read from Daniel's vision, shall we? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse, one from another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear, and it raised itself up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, of it between its teeth, of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leper, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in my night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ladies and gentlemen, it's always best to ask questions. Consider this. Have you ever heard anyone ask you this? This is a great riddle. Let's go back to verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions. Did you catch it? Let's go back. Let's go back, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 3. And four great beasts come up from the sea. Now let's count them. The first was like a lion. The second a bear. The third a leopard. And then what? Verse 7, after this I saw my night visions. Riddle me this, ladies and gentlemen. Are you so sure that you were ever given the details of the fourth beast? And by all means, riddle me this. Have you never considered what the four winds were 
that strove upon the sea that caused these beasts to rise. Do you have your trays in the upright positions, ladies and gentlemen? Are your seat buckles fastened? Riddle me this. It's been going around here quite a lot lately that come September 23rd, 2017. That starting pistol just may go off. I wonder. But more importantly, oh, ladies and gentlemen, if you need a clue, well, that's what I'm hoping for. Let's get this shindig rolling. Why, you're going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie. Let's ride.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. I hope you liked my opening riddles. <laughs> Let me read a little bit from the Facebook page that we have. We've just opened up a new page, End Time Tribune. I posed a simple riddle today. Who or what are the four beasts uh, that rose up in Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 through 7? And to make a long story short, we certainly got to uh, the standard data. Uh, Brother Keith uh, put on here, Medio persian Aggression, Roman, and the final beast from the abyss. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a whole lot to talk about today. Uh, I spent some time talking to my wife about it today, and even she presented unto me some riddles. Because I said, now, now listen to it very carefully. I said, don't look at the Bible. I said, just let me read it to you. And she kept interrupting me. Now, I will tell you. Uh, one of the things that she interrupted me with, she was like, now, wait a minute. Why is it that the one predator was given eagle's wings and the other one was not? It was given the wings of a fowl. <laughs> so many important questions here to consider with what is to come. I was not posing my riddles to you to say that you had been believing all this time the wrong things. That's not what I was implying. I was implying it's time for you to begin to read every single word, every single verse, and ask those questions. Because God is not going to leave you hanging. That was never his intention to confuse you, not ever. So with that in mind… Uh, this episode is purely Brian's puppy, and boy, have we got a lot to cover. He has been looking uh, for these four in folds of time to put together some temporal seculars himself with a starting date. He and I was going through them, and I was just throwing stuff out there like, well, I know that year. That's when NATO started. And it just got deeper and deeper and deeper, so I have no idea the depths. We are going to go into history tonight. So, Brian, buddy, I hope you are ready. Uh, how are you faring so far this week? And then uh, let's just get right into it straight away, shall we? Faring so far this week, that's always an entertaining question. I'm faring as usual, working through a lot of material in the background, like as atypical, still trying to put together some of these puzzle pieces. And to be quite honest here, I think we're going to be really dealing with uh, a pretty big uh, puzzle piece of putting this here together because I like how you popped that uh, question, which I have not seen over there yet. You just always have to do that, don't you? Oh, boy. Yes, I do. Well, folks... Uh, I, I just got to pull up, point out a couple of things here real fast. I mean, okay, 
we start therein with uh, Daniel 7, and we get that nice list. And the lion, for instance, with the eagle's wings. I've seen a lot of people confuse that one, put it in a different spot, go this way or the other way. But yes, folks, that is the, uh, well, the media Persians. We would know that today as Iran, as they changed that name to that from the infamous statement out of Darius the Great, I am an Aryan from Ariah. I think you might want to remember that because that's going to come up here in the infamous a little book of Herodotus, which is uh, chapters I just looked at again. I marked this off a few weeks back are quite eye opening when you actually listen to what the boy is saying. But nonetheless, we look at the Iranian flag today and it still has that lion. And a lot of those will show the sword in its hand, etc. There's no doubt whatsoever that Iran, Media Persia, represents the lion. Therefore, that means that next beast would be who? Macedonia. That's where I'm going to let Matthew fill in these tidbits for folks. I'm going to stop there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Brian's goading me to go over a show that I did uh, back in the beginning, actually, I know I did it in 2010, about this very topic, pointing out that everybody knows the famous school that Alexander went to. Well, you can go to that school today, and you can see two gigantic half-bear, half-man chimeras. That's fact. You can look in the history books and see beyond any shadow of a doubt who the three ribs were in his mouth. That told him to rise and devour much flesh. The first one, of course, being his mother. She was, of course, a temple uh, prophetess. The next most famous one everybody knows about, the oracle. The Greek oracle. He then went there. She told him the exact same thing. Third time was a charm. When he went to Egypt, he, of course, went to see the sublime oracle. And third time was a charm. She told him the exact same thing. Now, why was the bear humped up on one side? This is common historical knowledge that his mother tried to kill his younger brother and poisoned him, striking him quite dumb. Uh, there's a lot of contention, a lot of theories about which poison she used, but it struck his brother dumb, and he was not smart after that. So, what happened? Alexander took him everywhere. Everywhere. Alexander would not let him out of his presence because he was afraid that his mother was going to try to kill his little brother. Just the small details I've given to you in under two minutes. There is no question in any historian's mind that the bear is in fact Alexander the Great. So just very little details there that people uh, – you read other uh, ministries' websites, and they just have no clue what actually happened on the ground. Of course, we know uh, why the first beast uh, was lifted up uh, and made to stand upon his feet as a man because we know that's exactly what Daniel tells us as the king was smoked for seven years. 
And then all of a sudden, he had a come-to-Jesus moment, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, when he raised up, he certainly was given the heart of a man because from that point forward, he knew who the Lord his God was. He knew who set up and who teareth down men, kings, leaders, generals, elected officials. There was no debating with Nebuchadnezzar after that time. So just right there, we're giving great details there concerning time because the Bible is quite clear about how long that duration of time was. And when you look into the Greek, you find out that, of course, it was an angel that did it, that struck him. And you find out all the other details. So with that in mind, this time around the ride, God has given us these details in the past to make absolutely sure that his bride is able to prepare her garments white as snow. So under no circumstances is he going to try to confuse us. He's actually giving details so she will not be confused. So she will know whether it's supposed to be washed upon a scrub board. Of course, a lot of you don't know what that is, but I watched my mother use a scrub board. Or perhaps we could word this a different way. Should it be washed on uh, hot or cold? Uh, should the wrench water be cold or hot? Or should this garment be dry cleaned? Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord, he is your God. He's no respecter of persons. Of course he's not going to confuse you. He's going to come out and say exactly what he means. Exactly what he means. And that's you've got to understand that's why the Bible says that. But he's no respecters of persons. Because he don't care. Who knows? He don't he don't care. So he's going to give it to you in two languages. And when you put the two together, oh my goodness, do you get a fantastic amount of information. And it just bothers me. I mean, I answered three emails today, and it just bothered me. I don't understand why Christians think that he wrote Ezekiel to confuse them. I, 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 it blows me away. But these are the reasons why, uh, here as of late, uh, I've been... Going back through the weather books that I've got from college, I've been going back through the um, uh, astronomy books I've got, uh, making sure uh, that my calculations are correct. Uh, that's why Brian has been literally wading through the genetic mapping that that is available to everybody because We need to be able to understand what God is telling us and then tell the bride so that she can know if it's supposed to be dry cleaned or washed on a scrub board. If she's supposed to use bleach or not, or if she's supposed to, upon drying it, hanging it up to dry or putting it in the dryer. So we have been laboriously pouring over science history, uh, medical data, astronomical data, making sure that the bride's path is straight right to the washroom. 
Bri? Well, and this is where the, uh, I think the largest disconnect has come in over the years because somehow this, uh, this ideology has been built that starting wherever they wanted to start and somehow getting this, uh, this uh, infamous last beast with seven heads and ten horns to somehow be the Roman Empire. But folks, that's not, that's not at all what the Bible has ever been telling you. I mean, unless you're going with the, uh, you know, one of the infamous historical mindsets of the, you know, like the preterist schools and whichever, yada, 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 I don't get into that stuff. I ignore that anyway, so I guess that's all irrelevant. But, I mean, folks, take a look at Revelation 13 for a moment. Because you're told emphatically that that last one, well, it sort of rises up at a specific time. Because right here in Revelation 13, verse 1, And I stood on the sands of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his head the name of blasphemy. Which version am I reading out of here? I guess that's fine. (laughs) And the beast which I saw was like to a leopard. Okay, so was like to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority. Now, on top of this, when you begin to go forward where the other ten, where the ten kings are mentioned themselves, it states that they are given their thrones for a short time. Okay, they're risen up at this stage. So I guess here's where I've got the question: How has this major disconnect come in, where people have somehow made this uh, the Roman Empire? Because first off. I don't recall that the Roman Empire was ever ruled over by ten kings. At its most height, you had the western portion of the Roman Empire later in history, and then you had the eastern seat, which is over in Constantinople. So how do we get that they were ruled over by ten kings? Now, I know everybody went all googly-eyed when the uh, European Union started, And, you know, it started with however many and on down the line. But, folks, it was never 10. So that thinking sort of fell apart. This, therefore, means, as Matthew just emphatically pointed out to everybody here, if that second beast is Macedonia, then that means... That third beast still has yet to rise. And we have something encoded with the city in Iraq that is essentially the seat of the uh, Iraqi Kurdish Empire. And that name is encoded something. The name for a bill in the ancient tongue has encoded to you four heads. 
or four gods. And you can go, let's see here, where is this at? The name for that city, Arab-u, Elu, to mean four gods. And this is where things get rather interesting. You can go in and simply pull up, just type in Kurdistan. I've got several articles up. I prefer to go to Britannica, but nonetheless, even the Wikipedia, you can clearly see it. If you click on the top image that's there, folks, you might want to take note of where the ancient land of Kurdistan was because they were supposed to get their land. But guess what? Oh, that infamous Sykes-Picot agreement stole all their land from them. Here we go again, back to that Sykes-Picot agreement. The little underhanded deal that the British and the French did and the Western nations all followed behind to divide up the entire Middle East so they could steal their oil. Wow. Seems familiar. But if you pull this up, you can quite literally see the Kurdish inhabited areas. Okay, look. Up into Turkey. How much trouble are we seeing in Turkey? And uh, with Erdogan fighting against these Kurdish populations. I mean, for Pete's sakes, everybody, he's like pretty much launching... Uh, planes out of Turkey to go after him in Iraq. He's been going after them in Syria. The American military forces that have been on the ground, which, quote-unquote, mind you, they're not there, and yet they are, have been cordoning off and protecting the Kurds in Syria. Well, is that part of their original landmass as well? Yes. And they are holding a region in there as we speak. So you have them into Turkey. You have them going down through Iraq, and then Iran. Now stop and think, everybody, for a moment here. Okay, they are up moving towards independence in our bill coming up here in September, the Kurdish people. And they are getting a lot of backing from some of these other nations. And... We have, once again, the circumstance up in Syria, where even uh, Sergei Larov, the uh, Russian politician, basically, has even stated that the Kurds are part of the solution to bringing about peace within Syria and stopping the chaos. We had the Gulen coup that went into Turkey. Well, Gulen and his very backers are also tied in with the Kurdish people. The MEK, the People's Mujahideen group that has been trying to get Iran handed to, over to them in a regime change, well, again, they tie into the Kurdish people. Strange things have been going on. We've had, in the past, we had the uh, leader of Quds Force, or Jerusalem force from Iran come over and threaten the Kurdish people and say, don't you dare go for independence. We had the Arabians that went over and met with a Shiite cleric because we have Shiite groups within Iraq. You know, most times the Shia are aligned with Iran, but that's a little bit more 
There's a lot more to that than just simply meets the eye. Just because they're Shiites does not mean they align with the Ayatollah and the Malaz and so on and so forth within Iran. This is a religious division between their doctrinal divides. And I don't know. At some point, we're going to have to cover the Iran-Contra, but I don't think today's the day. Nonetheless, on top of it, we had something very strange happen as well, though, because you have the Arabians meeting with the, uh, the Shia delegates over in Iraq saying, we do not want the Kurdish people to have their independence, and yet you have somebody that's connected tightly with the king of Saudi Arabia going over and speaking to Gulen here in the United States, right down the road from the infamous intelligence communities. And he's still being sheltered here, everybody. Oh, geez, good grief. Now let's not go there today. The Arabian people are not going to be too pleased with this reemergence of the quote-unquote Neo-Ottoman Empire. They were not keen on it then because a group of, well, it's the House of Togmarah, Beth Togmarah in the Bible, Okay, they came in from Central Asia and moved up into Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, to make a long story rather short at lightning speed here, sacked Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And yet the only reason they sacked that, folks, is because of the Germanic and French knights that came in and dropped the walls in Constantinople during the Crusades. The walls were weakened. It was literally because of the infamous crusaders that those walls were initially weakened. By the time the Ottoman Empire came about, they were able to make an arms deal that the Byzantine Empire, or the seat of the Eastern Roman Empire, was trying to also get the same deal to get a hold of gunpowder taken from where? From China. For cannons. Well, the Turkish people paid more, they got the cannons, they knocked down those walls, they took Constantinople. Those walls were weakened first, though, by the Crusaders, and I think that's very important to remember that aspect, because they never would have done that if it wouldn't have been for the actions of those Teutonic Knights and the uh, Frankish Knights on top of it at that time. And that's how we ended up with the Ottomans. They ended up on top of it taking over the Islamic world. Their understanding of Islam was a little bit on the uh, weak side. But nonetheless, because of that victory, next thing you know, they're ruling over the entire Islamic world. And the Arabian people at that time didn't like it, and they sure as heck don't want that reemergence happening now. Personally, in my mind, I've been beginning to wonder because we already know that we have a group that is aligned with Kurdish people that is trying to get the seat in Iran to get the regime change going there. We had the Gulen coup that happened the first time around the ride, but I'm beginning to wonder if we're about to see stirrings again in Turkey because they still have not fixed their ties completely with Russia after shooting down a Russian plane quite some time back and... Not to even mention the Russian ambassador that was shot in broad daylight really didn't help matters either. They've been threatening the various European nations, mainly have really been rattling sabers with Germany. So once again, that's not 
he's a little bit he's a little bit on the problematic side, and I tend to wonder if his uh, shelf life may be a little bit shortened here with the way his actions have been leaning. This is pure speculation. I don't know. I'm looking at the facts, though, and I really have to wonder when I look at this map of the Kurdish area. Now, like I said, Lara had also stated that they would bring stability throughout the Middle East as a whole. And to a degree, if you look at the Kurdish people, I went through a couple of uh, good, probably three documentaries last night to look them over. And they're actually quite... I would have to say a rather magnificent group of people. They definitely, I can see, would have that high probability of bringing about the stability within Syria, within their sector as well. We told people a while back through the videos that once we saw Mosul cleared out, which is Nineveh, to really keep an eye on Erbil. They are pushing right now for this independence. America's doing what they do. Why am I not surprised? But there's a lot of people that are backing them for this. Like I stated, Russia is definitely one of them. And we also had, earlier in the week, um, I caught a video off Rajah, where a uh, Jewish man stood up and said, declare your independence. Do it. This is going to cause cause a whole lot of controversy in the Middle East though if this does happen and I think now that we can see where the original Kurdistan should have been before they came in and nicely uh, tore up their land masses with that Sykes-Picot agreement I think we're beginning to understand on top of it too why that city is referred to as four gods or even four heads because at least in our modern mapping Folks, this could cause them to gain control over all these areas. Now, this is just speculation on my part, but there's a lot of evidence supporting, as we speak, this very speculation. Now, I'm going to stop there for a bit and let Matthew chime in. Well, this is, this is key critical, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just ask ourselves, okay? When it comes to media Persia, let me ask Brian point blank to make sure this has been stated very plainly. Now, Brian, historically, the Persians are who? And are they an established country right now? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that is Iran. But they are the people of Iran. Now, when we ask ourselves about the Medes, Brian has already given us in-depth, brain-crushing details that the Medes are the Kurds. Now, think uh, about actually, what Brian no, stop, said. Stop. Absolutely okay. not. Cur- Absolutely not, because there are Medes within the Kurds. But the the Kurds are far more complex than that, and we'll get to that later. But no, um, they are not solely the Medes. There's the YDNA alone proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt that they are not just the Mede 
uh, people. There is a vast group of different people groups within the Kurdish population. Now, many of them state that they are descended from the Medes, and there's nothing wrong with that because, yes, some of them are. But this is a lot more complex than just that. Let's not forget, for instance, about the... uh, Oh, boy. Izatzis, the Erbil, the Adiabin Jews. They were Assyrians, folks. We actually just agreed with what I was getting ready to say. You just didn't let me finish. Um, Back to my point, ladies and gentlemen. He said what was going on right now between Iran and the Kurds. He said that the leader of the Quids Force – now, first and foremost, uh, why why was a general stepping in declaring to the world, no, the Kurds better not get independence? You did catch that, right? But that is what happened. Wasn't the… Is uh, uh, the Iranian government – no. It was a general of Quid's force stepped forward and said, no, I don't want them de- declaring independence. This tells you one thing. He would only say that because he didn't want, A, number one, people that he was obviously supporting in one way, shape, or form not – Performing a coup on his authority Because Ladies and gentlemen Think about what I just said It's obviously A military operation That's going on on the outside Of Iran Concerning what's going on With at least partially The Kurds That's why the Iranian government didn't make this statement. So this tells you we're knee-deep in waters because on top of that, Brian already explained it in his correction to me that we've also found proof that there is something else. And it's then, ladies and gentlemen, that you begin to understand, oh my goodness, this is why the Bible puts it in such phraseology, that the treacherous would perform treachery. So, ladies and gentlemen, with these things in mind, looking at the data that God has provided unto us, we are in seriously treacherous waters. Well, it makes me think back to Daniel because what was stated. Let me read it again. And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. We've got an awful lot of chess pieces on the board right now. And an Iranian general has no business getting on a world platform saying, no, the Kurds better not declare independence. I mean, that's like... uh, What would you all do if Petraeus come forward and start making public declarations about, I don't know, the Palestinian people? You would immediately know that something stinks to high heaven. So the details that's being presented here tonight by Brian, you all might might want to take note of exactly what's being said, and I mean exactly what's being said. 
those people groups that he mentioned, you need to rewind and write them down and go and see for yourself. I want to add something in here right now that completely amazes me. Revelation chapter 12. Having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. Revelation chapter 13. Having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. Ladies and gentlemen, he's giving you a time frame, and then he goes on to tell you why he's saying that last part. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Why is this entity doing this? Because Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. On his head are many diadems. And yes, that's the word for diadem. Choose three times in Revelation. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So this is the exact opposite of what is true of this beast. Christ has just but one head. And on that head has many diadems, and on that one head is written a name which he only knows himself, complete inversion. You'll take note, like I said, back in Revelation chapter 13, blasphemous names, plural, or multiple names on his head. But by the way, uh, like I said, I'm just pointing it out to everybody so they realize that, well… The Adidu Regia made sure to give you a silhouette of what it had just described. Here, let me read it one more time. Revelation chapter 12, it says this. Having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were diadems. Revelation chapter 13, what does this one say? Having ten horns – okay, so stop the bus. This time it said horns first. And seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. Key critical information for you to see what's going on. So what's going on on the ground right now is magnificently important. But if you don't pull back the curtain and look behind, get at those genetic records… Get it every scrap bit of information we could get from the ancient historians. If we don't do that, we're going to be completely entertained to death. They will entertain you to death. I mean, there's more ministry-tainment going on out there. There is more worship-tainment going on out there than edification. Those things got nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, even today, I had to massively modify my Facebook feed because I'm, I'm not here to listen to – I don't need uh, ministry-tainment taking up my, my news feed. I don't need that. I need important stuff. And most of these ministers, that's, that's what they'll share. They'll share just entertainment. 
So we're getting really down to the point where the rubber's hitting the road. We really don't have to. I mean, we have a huge harbinger over our heads come September 23rd. Because, ladies and gentlemen, only the harlot would receive a Uraeus crown, not the bride. Brian, back to you. This is where I'm uh, looking through and considering how to move forward with this. Because, folks, you got to understand the uh, history, for instance, of the city, or bill which is the capital of the Diabene. Uh, during the Achaemenid Empire, it was an Assyrian satrapy that was left alone to rule itself. And this is where things get rather interesting. Because I know that people are not familiar with some of our videos on the Bands of Time. We did one on the... Uh, Queen of Babylon, which we ended up finding out through the ancient historical texts, was referred to as Adagopi. She was born in the 20th year of Ashurbanipal. She was an Assyrian queen. She birthed through her loins, the Chaldean kings were birthed. She was alive during that entire time frame up until Nabadonius. Now, Nabadonius was the technical king over the Chaldean Empire, and he fled over into the Arabian lands and handed over his kingship to Belshazzar. And this Atagopi was his mother, this Assyrian queen who had set up and was worshipping the moon god Sin over in Haran. And where is Haran? Well, it's a major ancient city in Upper Mesopotamia, whose site is near the modern village of Altina Basque, Turkey. That's where she was over worshipping the moon god Sin. We also had, at the time of Alexander the Great, facing down Darius III, the Battle of Gagamela. And this is the place associated with Alexander killing Darius III. The Battle of Gagamela was also called the Battle of Arbella, a.k.a. Erbil, was a decisive battle of Alexander the Great's invasion of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. In 331 BC, Alexander's army of the Hellenic lead met the Persian army of Darius III near Gagamela, close to the modern city of Dohuk, Iraqi Kurdistan. Even though heavily outnumbered, Alexander emerged victorious due to his army's superior tactics and his deft employment of light infantry. It was a decisive victory for the Hellenic League and led to the fall of the Achaemenid Empire. Now, 
it did take quite some time before Darius III was slain, and it, he wasn't slain by Alexander's hand. He had fled. Alexander being the way he was, for instance, Darius III's wives were left there, so on and so forth, and he was not mean to them, did not slay them. He was kind to them. Going through, he's chasing down Darius III, finds him laying dead in the field. Somebody committed treachery and slayed him, and it ticked Alexander off. Because he had felt that that was not the proper thing for somebody to do to the king of this empire as he did. This led into some of the further battles that brought him in towards Pakistan, Afghanistan, moving up into those areas before he even chased them down. Brought him up against the Sogdians, so on and so forth. But this was the mega battle happened in front of this place that led to bringing about the downfall of the Achaemenid Empire at that stage. It began in front of this place. And let's see here. I already covered that. Okay, like I stated, this was part of the Achaemenid Assyrian Empire, and they were ruled over on their own. I discussed Nabodonius there for a split second. Hey, I mean, I'll read this here. This is this Autogopia of Haran. This is the Queen of Babylon referred to in the Bible. Discovery. Historians have discovered two copies of what appears to be an autobiography of Autogopi. The first copy discovered by H. Pognan in 1906 was written on a broken steel excavated at Haran. The second copy, uncovered 50 years later by D.S. Wright, was written on the pavement steps of the northern entrance to the great mosque at Haran. The autobiography starts out with a first-person account by Adagopi herself and ends with a description of her burial. Because Adagopi was buried with the honors of a queen, some scholars have attested that she acted as a regent for Nabodonius when he abandoned Babylon and moved to the oasis of Tema starting in 552 B.C. She mentions that she was born in the 20th year of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal and that she cared for the sanctuaries of the moon god Sin for 95 years. She also mentions that she lived to see her son Nabodonius made king over Babylon, which took place in 556 BC, making her approximately 92 years old at his coronation and 96 years old at his departure to Tema. Adagopi credited Nabodonius' call to kingship to the moon god Sin, and her autobiography contains a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. In response to this prayer, Adagopi apparently received a prophecy from Sin in a dream regarding future actions of her son as king. Though you, are through you, I will bring about the return of the gods to the dwelling in Haran by means of Nabodonius, your son. He will construct Ihalu. He will complete its work. He will complete the city of Haran greater than it was before and restore it. 
he will bring Sin, Nusku, and Sataruna in procession back to Ahalu. Interestingly, other sources reveal that Nabodonius did indeed pay homage to Sin during his reign as king of Babylon. He gave special attention to the temples of Sin in Haran and Ur, and even turned the temple of Marduk in Babylon into a sanctuary for Sin. And we spoke about Marduk in last Wednesday's episode, and what Mars, there's all kinds of associations there, folks. In Old Persian, this city was also called Arbila, which mean, can mean Ar, referring to Arian and Bila, meaning dwelling place, which is a cognate with other Indo-European words, such as villa or village, making Arbila city of Arians. And oh boy. Darius the Great made that comment that he was an Aryan from the land of Ariah. Okay, folks, Ariah is in Afghanistan. That's going to be important because this does tie into these Kurdish people. Let's see here. And we have Herbal as the capital of a diabene. Let's see. This goes into a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, was an ancient kingdom in Assyria with its capital at Arbila, modern-day Arbila in Iraq. Adiabian rulers converted Jews to Judaism from Asherism. And what is Asherism, folks? Well, it's the worship of Asher in the first century. Queen Helena of Adiabene, known in Jewish sources as Heleni Hamalka, moved to Jerusalem where she built palaces for herself and her sons, Izatzis Bar Manbaz and Manbaz II, at the northern part of the city of David, south of the Temple Mount, and aided Israel in their war with Rome. According to the Talmud, both Helena and Manbaz donated large funds for the Temple of Jerusalem. Another uh, entry for this, Helena of Adiabene. She was a queen of Adiabene and Adessa, wife of Manbaz I, her brother, and Abgaras V with her husband, Manbaz I. She was the mother of Izatis II and Manbaz II. Helena became a convert to Judaism about the year 30 A.D., the names of some of her family members and the fact that she was married to her brother indicate, I'm going to skip two of these words in here because that's just, once again, the atypical confusion of Magian origin. We go down to Izatzi's one. Or also considered to be Izatzi's two was a king of Diabene around the year 15 AD. Very little is known about him with any degree of certainty. He was the son of Helena of Adiabene and Mambaz I. Going to Izatis II, Izatis Bar Mambaz, Mambaz I, 
also known as Basius or Mombazus, was the king of the Neo-Assyrian Parthian client state of Adiabene. Everybody catch that, folks? Assyrian Parthian client state. Okay, again, no different than what happened during the time of the Achaemenid Assyrian Empire. It was still being ruled over by an Assyrian king. So the Assyrians, yes, they still had a kingdom here in Erbil. And it stayed that way for a very long time. Meaning, we had an Assyrian king on the throne at the time who became a Jew when Jesus was walking the earth. That makes you really reconsider everything that was happening there with Micah 5 because you have a perfect shadow and a silhouette right here in broad daylight, historically speaking. So therefore, of course, he was not the Assyrian who would evade the land. By no stretch of the imagination could he be. He became a Jew. And they are all over the book of Josephus. Let me continue with at least reading this historical documentation. In the 20s and 30s of the first century CE, he was the husband and brother of Queen Helena of Diabene. With Helena, he fathered Izatzis Bar, Monbaz, and Monbaz too. We have the uh, king of Edessa. I'm going to skip over that because there's a lot of contention, historically speaking. They're not certain whatsoever what the deal is with this one. And this is what can sort of happen with ancient history, folks. Anybody tells you that, oh, this is simple and easy and everything is solidified and stays in stone, you got another thing coming. There's a massive discussion, for instance, going on about a finding that has taken place in Israel as we speak, and they're trying to put the pieces together and understand exactly what this place is, when it was destroyed, who to attribute it to, etc. This stuff, you have to continually go back and look at the new evidence that is presented uh, over and over and over again. Modern history, to a degree, is kind of easy, but then again, it's not because we have that thing called the intelligence community, so therefore we've only got a third of modern history on the table. They just like to hide the other stuff, or so they think. But let's see here. And like I said, we can kind of skip over that for the time being. I would go in and look at uh, Odessa anyways, though, folks, because it does tie in. There's a whole bunch of odds and ends here I'm going to skip over. Well, another one I wanted to point out here quick, though, is we had brought this one up while we were covering what was going on there with the battle for Mosul. Um, Jeremiah 51, verse 27, brings up, set up a standard on the earth, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. Now, many are not familiar with the work I have done on the Magi in the past, so this is going to be important that I stop and explain Ashkenaz. Now, there's the common sort of misconception out there because of the fact that, the, uh, for instance, the uh, Germanic uh, Jews that were living in Germany before all of the nationalist chaos started breaking out and they started getting 
attacked and persecuted there is that terminology Ashkenazi and that therefore has been associated with Germany when it's not the case, folks. Gomer is the Germanic people. They were the Cimmerian in ancient times. One moment. <coughs> the Magi. Everybody is confused that with being the Zoroastrians and so on and so forth. And that's, folks, it's not the case. They have gotten you confused at the timing of Zarathustra when he was walking the earth. And there is ample evidence that proves that he was working in league with Darius the Great at the time that he took over, usurped the throne of the line of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus himself claimed to be a king of Anshan. Anshan was a region of ancient Elam. And Darius the Great usurped that throne. It's a very important piece, and we cover this in the video on the Bands of Time on uh, a kingdom divided against itself in that video. So if you want more information, I would highly advise going and watching that because this is just a brief paraphrase. But nonetheless, Ashkenaz was also known from the historical texts, um, the Assyrian texts, Herodotus, etc. They refer to them as the Saka branch of the Scythian. Now, the Scythian are very complex, especially where they pull most of the historical work from concerning Herodotus. It is not a simple cut and paste that the Scythian are all one people group because even Herodotus goes out of his way to show a very different namings of different groups of people. And there's one specific group he points out, which is tied to biblical Ashkenaz, which is the Saka. Most specifically, the Saka Tigrahuda, referred to as the Scythian with pointy hats. Well, they ended up, they were the Magi, always had been, always will be. During the time of the 1800s, there are vast amount of texts that were put out there. And just, of course, they were automatically eradicated when we hit that last part of the 1800s. Somebody wanted this covered up. There are vast texts from multiple scholars out there that were stating emphatically that the Saka Scythian, that the Saka Tigerhuda branch of the Scythian were the Magi. They always had been. And yet somehow we've gotten this confusion that's come in over the years that state that it was the Zoroastrians, that somehow the Parthians on top of it with their pointy hats, that was the Zoroastrians. Folks, that's not the case. That's going to be very important coming up here about understanding what's happening with the Magi because these Kurdish people most definitely have their connections to them. And when you look at the genetic profiling, you can even see that some of these descendants of Ashkenaz are within that group of people. Now, on top of this, I did some work on this to double-check it because I had my suspicions. And I was able to trace this to the fact that Rechobeth has been located as being a diabene by various scholars throughout time. And that is a spot that is listed in Genesis uh, 10, verse 11. And they like to play with the translation here in some of these because they like to state that, Nina, uh, that Nimrod built these cities. And that's not what it says. Genesis 10, verse 11 states, Out of that land 
went forth Asher and built Nineveh, the city of Rechobeth and Kalah. Now, I've done extensive work on the Indus civilization, folks, and I don't really have any other conclusions but the fact that the Indus Valley civilization, Kalah was one of those cities in that Indus Valley. Let's see here. I'm trying to get through this quickly here. Actually, you know what? Let's take a break here so I can uh, we can do our regular break, that is, and then move forward after that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to uh, take a special break tonight. We're going to listen to Daniel chapter 7 and then Revelation chapter 13 in its context for tonight's show. I suggest that you listen very intently and take notes, even as a child would. Chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up on the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of man, and a mouth, speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season in time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arrive, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me. But I kept the matter in my heart. Chapter 13 And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity.
He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. It's good to be with you tonight. Uh, ministry update. I've released several posts uh, up on sign of the son of man dot wordpress dot com if you want to check them out uh Brian has been doing plenty over at uh, over to tension show dot com I suggest you check everything out um, I find it funny during the break I thought that I'd found a pretty good uh, tidbit there for Brian to share as he was going through uh his historical documentation and then uh, his reply to that was you are aware I posted that last early this morning. Ha, ha, ha. Well, <laughs> will you tell us the significance of this article that I sent you, please, Bri? Because I see, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I was searching for the Citadel of Erbil. Now, that I know all about. Uh, I did extensive research on that Citadel especially the uh, excavation uh, photos uh, from the time before uh, Sykes-Picot and all that stuff, uh, stuff that my uh, Old Testament uh, professor had in an institution of higher learning. So I'm pretty interested to see that, Brian, because I know all about that, that citadel of Erbil. So what's the significance of what's going on here, please? Well, this goes right into the talks that have been going on. I mean, uh, it's known that in September this uh, referendum for independence is being brought up. There's a lot of nations that are just saying, just do it. And once again, this uh, sort of goes into this same contention that's going back and forth and back and forth. Um, you know, stating the world has acknowledged Kurdistan even if they don't realize it. 
And you've got people raising the uh, flag of Kurdistan region near the Citadel in City Center. And they've done this, uh, I think it was flying in Kirkuk earlier. And, well, of course, uh, Erdogan hasn't been too pleased with that. But, uh, like I spoke of before, he's been causing so much trouble with the Kurds that it's absolutely ridiculous. And you know what? This is actually, I want to touch on this fast. Now, it was uh, come up quite a bit during the time frame um, with ISIS that they had possibly been bringing oil through Turkey. And there is evidence on the ground, especially from even the Kurdish people that have been attacked emphatically by Erdogan that state, look, they have been bringing oil through here. They know full well about it, and not to mention he's using forces that just so magically look just like ISIS to attack us here in Turkey. Folks, if this is the case, this brings things into a whole other very problematic position. Not to even mention that they've got Erdogan in a stranglehold concerning uh, them getting their independence because... To give a brief summary, for instance, when Israel was declared a nation in 1948, folks, you have to understand that they had to blackmail a vast portion of these nations to even get that resolution resolution to come through. And what they had on them was the fact that they were colluding with the Nazi war criminals during the war and after. And it even came down to the banks, the big bankers here in America – and the oil barons and everything else. They had to get the South American votes in their favor, and I believe it might have been off the top of my head, Rockefeller, who was in the government at that point in time, they had him in a stranglehold because they knew full well what he was doing. Nonetheless, you're looking at the same very circumstance happening here as far as Kurdistan being declared a nation, not to even mention some point in the future, we're going to have to talk about Iran-Contra because there's a lot of facts that have never hit the light of day outside of the source of the man that was hired into the State Department to find out why these Nazi war criminals were all over and why they had not been persecuted. That's a long, very complex topic, but nonetheless, there's something bigger at play here, folks. I don't know exactly what but the way that suddenly the United States just took a back step and said, hey, we're going to keep Assad on this throne, there's something far bigger going on here. And Syria was all over the place within the Iran-Contra scandal. They were the ones that were actually propping up Hezbollah in Lebanon. They were the ones that were holding hostages, American hostages, with and commanding over the top of those Hezbollah forces in Lebanon at the time. And we had thought nonstop that that was in alignment with Hezbollah, with Iran doing this, but that's not the case. There's quite something far larger at play here that I had never known about until the last few days. And that makes me really wonder what in the world we are seeing on the world stage right now, because keeping Assad on that throne Well, it puts a lot of people in danger 
all throughout that region, most notably Israel, is in a very bad position now. But this goes into, once again, it's essentially the same thing that, well, look, folks, they just need to, I mean, if you go and look into the history of the Kurdish people, especially since Sykes-Picot, you know, and it brings up Sykes-Picot right here, it's like it says, they just need to stand up and declare independence. It's just like that uh, Jewish man in that conference that was being held the other day spoke up. You people just need to do it. They're not going to. They're going to pull the same stunts they pulled on Israel. They're not going to allow it. We know how they play these games, folks, and they just need to stand up and do it. And they're not, I don't think they're incorrect in what has been stated. But I'll stop there and let Matthew chime in on that for a moment. You're absolutely right. It's amazing how people think that the governments were working pro-Israel in their declaration. Oh, no, that's so far from the truth. It's... It's astonishing. The problem is, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, this is a simple fact that it is the media Persians that are in biblical play. Now, everybody's heard me talk extensively about how the Assyrian goes behind the scenes and uses Moab and Ammon. And I just talked about tonight how it is obvious that the Quids Force commander in Iran is doing this exact very thing with the Kurds. Oh my God. It's like the entire world thinks that they are holding an apple in their hand when they're not. And what they are holding in their hand the Assyrian stands by just ready to light the fuse. I mean, we already have on the ground massive amounts of people rising up in support of a new, well, Cyrus type of regime. We have this going on with the Kurds. This is getting to be dicey. It's getting to be dicey. The entire world knows if they give Kurdistan a state, it will only be used exactly in the same way that the state of Israel has been used. And it will benefit everybody except guess who? It will benefit everybody except the men, women, and children that are Kurdish. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, just Start translating Israeli blogs and news feeds. Ladies and gentlemen, they're in worse shape than we are. Their government isn't even remotely for them. Not even remotely for them. So <clears throat> we have no idea the actual course that's going to be taken to get to this point that Bible that the Bible is telling us. We just know where we're going. We are going to go there. We just don't know how modern events is going to take us to that location. So the course may change, but the destination does not. 
And it's amazing how the Kurds are just working into everything. And as far as that goes, the Quids Force Commander, the Deep State, you know, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the Deep State, um, I got some news today uh, concerning massive things going on uh, in Turkey. So I don't know what this is all about, but uh, the entire upper echelon of the Turkish military force has been reshuffled. Now look, you know, this kind of uh, reminds me of historical events there in the same location. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, does anybody remember the Ba'ath Party purge by Saddam Hussein? This this isn't going well. We're taking baby steps, I think. And I hope everybody listened to the break. I hope you really listened to the breaks, ladies and gentlemen, because you know, Brian and I haven't even hinted to the simple fact that there's a separation between the two chapters covered here tonight. Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 12. Because most eschatology experts start in Daniel. That is the foundation for all their timelines. But this has nothing uh, even remotely uh, related to a, well, a rapture type of event. I mean, there are several overt references here to things that do not go well. So with that in mind, uh, this actually details what is going to happen. So this is – so, Brian, back to you. Yeah, and there's so much little historical documentation pieces to cover here, and that's why i got to try to whip through a lot of this at lightning speed because this only – Folks, as far as Erbil is concerned, this is only one little detail within this mix. But nonetheless, you have to understand that this was the Assyrian um, satrapy during the Achaemenid Empire. And then in the Parthian Empire, on top of it, it still was ruled over by Assyrians. This makes Izatzi's father, through this queen, where it was pointed out she most notably must have been tied into the Magi. That's very important little detail. Birth through her loins, well, of course he was an Assyrian coming through a Magi. And you've got, you know, there's a little article here from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Some of these are a bit dated, obviously, because this is coming from, I believe, like a 1901 version of it. But nonetheless, you've got him listed here as a proselyte 
King of Adia Bean, son of Queen Helena and Mombaz One. And let's see here. They give the birthday around 1 A.D. of the Common Era and died in 55 A.D. But nonetheless, there's a lot of uh, chronological work I've done in the Book of Josephus that does throw this into a bit of an earlier time frame. And you haven't come up all over the place in Josephus here. I just did a search through my electronic version of it. And I've got massive hits all over the place. But if you look in chapter 4 um, is one of the spots where it comes up. And uh, you've got some descriptions here. Um, you got it in chapter 4 and then where they've got the designation of uh, with the number 2. Or I guess chapter 4, verse 2, if you want to go with a biblical numbering system. And uh, here is the uh, describing the temple, and you have him uh, listed in this little sentence paragraph portion here. The beginning of the third wall was the Tower of Hippicus, whence it reached as far as the north quarter of the city. The Tower Pacifinus, and then was so far extended till it came over against the monuments of Helena which Helena was the queen of Adiabene, the daughter of Isatzes. I don't know why it's saying that, and extended further to a great length and passed by the sepulchral caverns of the kings and bent again at the tower of the corner at the monument, which is called the Monument of the Fuller, and joined the old wall at the valley called the Valley of Sidron, etc., etc. And I mean... Okay, folks, why is Helene coming up right here when Josephus is describing the temple? That, therefore, means she is very important. And so once again, we go back into what I was describing here with Isatzes. While trying Tehran Spazanu, whether he had been sent by his father, a Jewish merchant named Ananias, acquainted him with the tenets of the Jewish religion in which he became deeply interested. His mother had been previously won over to Judaism without his knowledge. On ascending the throne on the death of his father, Isaacs discovered the conversion of his mother, and he himself intended to adopt Judaism and even submit to circumcision. He was, however, dissuaded from the step by his teacher Ananias and by his mother, but was ultimately persuaded thereto by another Jew, Eliezer. For some time, Azazis enjoyed peace, and he was so highly respected that he was chosen as an arbitrator between the Parthian king, Artaban III, and the rebellious nobles of the monarch. But when several of Azazis' relatives openly acknowledged their conversion to Judaism, some of the nobles of Adiabene secretly induced Abia, king of Arabia, to declare war against him. Uh, did you catch that, folks? Induced Abia, king of Arabia. I just brought up that Arabian delegates were over speaking with the uh, Shia Iraqis there about them not being too pleased with this Kurdish resolution. Izatzis defeated his enemy who in despair committed suicide. The nobles then conspired with Volgay's king of Parthia, but the latter was at the last moment prevented from carrying out his plans 
and Izotzes continued to reign undisturbed for 24 years. He left 24 sons and 24 daughters. Izotzes' remains and those of Queen Helena were sent by Mombaz II to Jerusalem for burial. For the account of Izotzes' conversion given in the Midrash, see Genesis. Okay, never mind that there. But nonetheless, so at least as far as Izotzes is concerned, or Bill, the uh, at this time it would have been the Parthian satrapy, which, um, if memory serves me correctly, the Parthian satrapy of Assyria, basically, which did not fall off the top of my head until, I believe, 216 AD to the Romans. Let's see here. Yeah, uh, according to Dio, Cassius Antonius took Arbilla in the year... 216 and that searched all of the graves there wishing to ascertain whether the Arsakide kings were buried there. Yeah, that tells me the Romans were trying to figure out who these kings were of the Parthian Empire. In later times, the Diabene became an archbishop with the seat of the Metropolitan at Arbilla. So we know on top of when the Romans finally conquered this place in approximately 216 A.D. So, this is just one portion of the group that makes up who these people are as far as the Kurdish group of people go. Now, if you look at the ones that are essentially uh, part of modern Turkey, they start out with the J2M172, uh, white DNA, DNA strand at about 19.9%, and that's a little bit complicated, but the J2M72 has even ties into the clonine. When you begin to look over the subclade, there are portions within it that break off to it, but nonetheless, J itself is... Most notably, it's tied into the descendants of Shem. Now, there were uh, some genetic tests that were done on the uh, Jewish people and varied surrounding communities, and they had found out that even the uh, Kurdish Jews were tied directly in to that population. And nonetheless, as we pointed out, the Kurdish um, those Jews from Erbil and the Diabene, they are also tied into that conversion with Helene, Helena, and Izotzes at the same time. So you have a continuity within this bloodline that has continued on to modern times. And within other groupings within this, uh, it depends on the varied ones. For instance, you've got some R1A, which a lot of times ties into the Turkic people. This is within the groups up in Turkey. Once again, R1, go down further, you know, a vast mix like what compromises the nation of Turkey as we speak. There's a lot of different people groups there. And if you go down to the ones from Iraq, you've got starting at the top, you've got the J2 bloodline again. So this draws you into the descendants of Shem. But you also have R1B. And R1B is that bloodline that will draw you into Ashkenaz in the Bible. Um, you know, if you take note of, for instance, Genesis verse 2, which, of course, 
you're also going to have the Medes in this line because Madai are the Medes. So, yes, you have some of the Medes in this mix. And it starts out right here. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog, Germany. The Magar, which are in modern-day Hungary. And Madai, or the Medes. Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rafath, as we've spoken of before. That's the uh, Rafath is the Slavic people that inhabit areas of Ukraine, Russia, and so on and so forth. More or less what they refer to as the Eastern Slavs. Because for some odd reason, they decided to throw that name Slavs on everybody throughout all those regions. And that can be a great deal of confusion. And then, obviously, Togarma, Turkey. So you have all these descendants of Germany, of Gomer. Like I said, this line, most specifically with Ashkenaz, shows up in the R1B. As I stated before, that is the Saka branch of the Scythian or the Magi. Most specifically in the Magi was obviously the Saka Tigrahuda. And this is where we got to talk about this for a moment. Historical terms, this is uh, referred to as megaphonia, a.k.a. the slaughter of the Magi. And here's what happened, basically, when good old Darius the Great seized the throne. The slaughter of the Magi, according to Herodotus, also sees Satius, when Darius the Great and his noble companions in 522 B.C., Murdered the imposter Smyrdas called, oh boy, Gamuda, the Magus. The help of his brother had usurped the throne. The Persian conspirators cut off the heads of these magi and showed them in the streets uh, to other Persians who then drew their daggers and killed the magi wherever they could find them. Herodotus adds that in commemoration of this event, the Persians used to hold the great feast called the Megaphonia, and during this feast, all the Magi stayed home in order not to be killed. Satius also mentions the annual celebration of the day of the killing of the Magus, whom he calls Svendantes. The slaughter of the Magi is also mentioned by Josephus, and it looks like 11, chapter 3, verse 1. So I'm going to have to look that one up. I haven't even looked at that yet. An appropriate Iranian word for megaphonia is the Sogdian, Muit's killing of the Magi, which is attested to in a Manichian text. And according to Walter P. B. Henning, who published it, is the exact replica of an old Iranian, Megozatai. Henning states that it is difficult to decide if Muitz is a genuine Sogdian word or a transliteration from Parthian or Middle Persian. In the above-mentioned Sogdian text, the murder of the Magi is a crime ascribed to Alexander the Great. Well, isn't that interesting? According to Henning, through this interpretation, the Magi tried to let fall into oblivion the true origin of the Megaphonia. The same author also assumes the Persians established a national festival during 
which the Magi were molested to remind them of their humiliation. And I think we can stop with that portion of it. Nonetheless, there's a lot of various historical scholars that have pointed out time and time again this uh, this infamous slaughter with this imposter Smyrtus called Gamuda of the Magus. Well, that was essentially the killing of the last uh, heir to Cyrus the Great's throne. <clears throat> and I don't know, folks. Gamuda. You might want to keep that name in the back of your head. I think it's kind of important. And they've, they've argued about this since the 1800s when they started noticing that Zarathustra and somebody named Gamuda seem to be fighting back and forth and back and forth and back and forth long after this uh, killing was supposed to have taken place. But then again, we all know the Bison inscription was nothing but a great big piece of propaganda where he claimed that he subdued the Saka Tiger Huda, the uh, Scythian with pointy hats, the Ashkenaz that I was speaking about earlier. And then they nicely added in a Little addition to the carving there with a great big six and a half foot uh, tall Saka Scythian, you know, great big tall gnome looking dude in chains. And all the historical texts state emphatically that he was chased out of there. The Darius the Great and his soldiers, once they crossed that river Euphrates and began going after these magi, they had no chance. So... Darius the Great lied again. And everybody knows about the Bison inscription being one of the monumental pieces of propaganda. There's text, there's new articles being released time and time again as of lately that I've seen people even find and post. So I'll stop there for a bit. Go ahead, Matthew. I want to say this. I hope everybody caught what you just said. Ladies and gentlemen, please try to understand that what Brian, what came out of his mouth, he didn't make it very clear. He literally said that the war against the Magi was a war against the bloodline of Cyrus the Great. was a war against the Magi. With that in mind, I hope you have an historical context as to why Brian and I showed these pictures of the tomb of Cyrus. And you could literally not see the end to the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you begin to realize what they already know. The person that fits this bill, of course, will be able to do what this bloodline was able to do. Well, you did hear all about him in Revelation chapter 13. You know, the Bible states a very strange thing about this Assyrian false prophet. He's going to be able to trample the host of heaven. 
Now, no reason to go into the Greek and the Hebrew. That's what the Bible, God's Holy Word, says. This one is something else. I mean, that's why Revelation chapter 13 described him in the way that it did. Absolutely off the charts. What this one is going to be able to do. Now, let me point out verse 7 again. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. I hope you all understand what the biblical usage for that word is. I mean, because God's not trying to play games with you. He's not trying to mess with your head. The ladies and gentlemen, the Hagion here mentioned, well, they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't gone anywhere. Of course, the clues to all these keys are right here. Just take note. It plainly said, reference to those who go into captivity and those who wield the sword, it makes itself pretty clear what it's talking about. So, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> this is probably information that a lot of our listeners have not heard before, but I'm sorry to say that, but Brian just gave you the historical documentation as to why these people are gathering around Cyrus's tomb. They want Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. That's who they want. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. I mean, we can go, we could delve into the depths of witchcraft and magic, and everybody runs around all the entertainment concerning this, but do you not understand what he just said? The Lord your God just told you that this one had the power to speak like an angel of great authority. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've read the Bible enough to know that the angels have the authority to speak over a great deal of many things. They can not only alter physics, they can alter the physical perception of that which makes up God's creation. Literally coming out and telling you that this one's going to be the ultimate magi. And ladies and gentlemen, everybody that was gathered around Cyrus's tomb, they know that. It's just the American Christians that don't. You're daft if you don't know that all these people know that they've been divided, just like 
the Christians have been. We've been divided into Catholic and Protestant and Evangelical and down the line it goes. They know they've been divided up into Shia and Sunni and to Yada and to Yada. They know that. They know, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> what their governments that have been set up by the Western nations. They know their governments have been set up by them. They know the only one who can deliver them is the one mentioned here, Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. They know that. It's just the American Christians that don't understand it, cannot comprehend it, but they know. I mean, literally, what you saw there that day was, well, if this would have happened in America, it would have been a great gathering from all 50 states to, you know, I don't know, George Washington's tomb or something. They know what's going on, just the Americans that have entertained themselves unto death. So… Just wanted to clarify there that Brian just absolutely told you why the Bible was saying what it was saying. See, Brian and I never doubted what Bible what God was saying when he wrote the Bible, his holy word. So when we took a read of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, we, we just believed it. We didn't know why he was saying that. Well, Brian just covered the historical documentation as to why God said that. You know, I started out this broadcast with riddles. Let me ask you this. Verse 12, Revelation chapter 13. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Let, maybe you didn't catch it. Let me read out of the Thompson. And he executeth all the authority of the first beast in its present, and causeth the earth and its inhabitants to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Did you catch it this time? Ladies and gentlemen, I just told you, I just gave you direct confirmation as to why there is a celestial scapegoat and what it's going to do when it comes in and why we're going to have to have planetary migration and why the king star is going to have to come in to save us and straighten out our orbitals again just like NASA's already proved that it's going to do, and now you know why. Now you know why the book of Daniel says that Muazim is what he worships. Ladies and gentlemen, what Brian and I are telling you are the historical documentation and the scientific fact of what is to come. This is what God was talking about the whole time. And ladies and gentlemen, 
If he can command and trample down the host of heaven, don't you understand what that means? Don't you understand that means that he can alter the earth's course through the heavens? I mean, God just come out and told you. Riddle me, ladies and gentlemen, why has your pastor never told you this, that the Bible, God's holy word, comes out and says that the Assyrian false prophet can alter what the earth is doing because um, the earth has to worship him. You do understand what that means, right? Brian? Um, absolutely amazing. We're down here to three minutes, so if you want to take us a little bit into overdrive, that's all right. But handing it back off to you, decide what it is you're going to do. We've got uh, 15 minutes in the overdrive, so give us about 18 minutes if you want to continue on. Well, of course I need to continue on. We still haven't – Good grief. All right, folks, let's uh, let's have a little discussion about the infamous Magi. I'm going to pass along a private conversation here that I had with a certain, uh, well, he's, I would have to say, a scholar in this department because he's been working on this for several years. Now, not long ago, there were some skeletons that were found in China that were in the uh, six-foot range. They were basically attired as royalty, and I've spoken about the Yellow Emperor before through the work of some scholars comparing the Indo-European language to the Chinese. They came to the conclusion that the Yellow Emperor was speaking of his hair, his yellow blonde hair, and the Saka Tiger Huda branch of the Scythian, the bodies of them that they have found buried up in Siberia and throughout other regions, had been well-preserved due to the fact of, obviously, the freezing, had essentially found out that, well, blonde hair, blue-eyed, six foot, six foot five, even sometimes a little beyond that, up to maybe six, eight, great big blonde-haired, blue-eyed dudes wearing those pointy hats. So the historical and archaeological data has been what has revealed to the world who these people actually were. And you have to understand, too, that the people of Russia had been carrying on a great amount of um, historical and archaeological work behind the Iron Curtain. And a lot of this stuff did not really begin to see the light of day until after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989. Now, there was varied odds and ends texts that had been passed from Russia into American uh, schools and so forth, which I happened to stumble on a whole uh, set of books that was obviously used in some college course that had been translated from the Russian of varied findings they had found throughout Central Asia, which is some interesting stuff. I've went through bits and pieces of that work. And, you know, of course, we've had, on top of it, China's also added a great deal into our understanding as well concerning Central Asia and everything that had happened throughout there. 
Um, in my work, I ended up tracing through Chinese records passed from the Parthians that the Magi in this late phase going towards the birth of Messiah, that some of them were in Antioch. And I st we posed a trick question to everybody who were the first Christians. Folks, you have to remember that the Magi bowed down and worshipped Messiah as the king. Okay, and then on top of it, later in the book of Acts, you get told that the first Christians were in Antioch. So it's kind of enough to blow your mind. To add into this, we had groups of them within India. Later in history, Prester John shows up on the scene, claiming he's a descendant of the Magi. And this was at a time during the Middle Ages where they panicked. He stated he had a great kingdom, so on and so forth. They sent out delegates looking for this guy. He gave specific details in there that one standout thing was that they produced pepper, and it was in India. Well, they know on top of it, A, the tribe of Manasseh was there. They've been bringing over people from the tribe of Manasseh into Israel. This has been all over the news over the last couple of years. But also Thomas was also sent to India, and his tomb on top of it has been found there. There's a lot of work. You can go and look into this as well. He was sent over to, believe it or not, a it's enough to blow your mind, but of all people, he gets sent to the region where the other portions of the Magi were at. And that's where this little detail with Prester John coming along later into history gets important. Not only that, folks, I would advise looking into Chinggis Khan's wives, because guess what? The whole entire Mongolian Empire, their wives were descendants of the Magi again, being sent from these very same places. That really begins to make you scratch your head when you consider it. Now, like I said, this private discussion. <clears throat> I stayed in here. I noticed you caught the findings in China, and I passed along a few things along on one of your posts that I stumbled onto the findings in Siberia of the Saka Tiger Huda. I began to trace them and work extensively with their history and the whole of Central Asia and even through Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, plus adding in Tibet. Because, yes, some of the Saka broke off those branches, went into Tibet. And once I began to notice other strange parallels, and it was from uh, an earlier book uh, from the Ashes of Angels that was written by Andrew Collins that I began to notice a lot of these things because he started tracing the Magi early in that. And essentially, I go on to state that I have found a vast amount of evidence to support this premise. Responds back to me, it is all connected north and east. And I am writing about writing all about it again now never really south other than into Egypt. Pay attention to that, folks, into Egypt. All right, why did Darius go after those magi? Well, your first hint is in Daniel 1, verse 20. And this is uh, wisdom and understanding about, or as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which a king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the 
magians and conjurers who were all in his realm. They come up again in Daniel 2, verse 2. Then the king gave an order to call in the magians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. But where do they show up first, folks? Genesis 41, verse 8. His spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magians, magicians of Egypt, and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Guess what? Again in Genesis 41, verse 24. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Exodus 7, verse 11. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and also the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. Exodus 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same, with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Exodus 8, verse 7. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Remember the frogs here, because I'm going to have Matthew bring something up about the frogs and Darius the Great crossing and chasing the Scythian. The magicians tried their secret arts to bring forth gnats, and they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 9, verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were the magician's were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. I'd have to say Andrew was correct with him stating that the further south they went in that regards towards the uh, west would have been in Egypt because, folks, you're being told right here they were in Egypt. I'm going to have uh, Matthew try to pull to memory that little infamous bit from Herodotus and the frogs when Darius tried to attack the uh, oh, yes. Sacchus oh, Scythian there. The Scythians. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is this is for real. Day by day, the monster Persian army advanced, and day by day, its difficulties increased until its situation grew serious indeed. The Scythians declined battle still, but Theseus sent to his distressed foe the present of a bird, a mouse, a frog, and five arrows. This signified, according to the historian, unless you take to the air like a bird, to the earth like a mouse, or to the water like a frog, you will become the victim of Scythian Arrows. Now, this warning, being as prophetic as it was, frightened Darius. And in truth, um, 
he was in a desperate, dire strait. Now, he left the sick and weak part of his army encamped uh, with the baggage train that that he brought with them. The Scythians were alarmed by the braying of the asses because familiar with the asses. Okay, let's take note, man. Let's let's take a deep breath. What did the Messiah write upon? Anyway, let me uh, let me continue on with this tale because at at any rate, <clears throat> he retreated. All right, uh, toward uh, the bridge that he had made, and they think historically that that was made out of boats, but. It, it, as quickly as he could go, okay? But the Scythians reached the bridge before him. And having taken counsel with the Ionian Greeks who had been left in charge, uh, they became the conquered subjects of the Persian king to break down the bridge and leave Darius and his army to their fate. Now, ladies and gentlemen. For one, the frogs that come out of the sea. The simple fact that it's because of the baggage train, they heard the asses bellowing because those were the beasts of burden. They would load them up with the war supplies. The Scythians didn't go that way, so they actually beat Darius to the bridge. Because this happened, uh, they <laughs> this is how the Ionian Greeks got underneath the reign of the Persians. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so prophetic, it's off the charts. Oh my goodness, we're how much time do we got left? Let me see. Yeah, um, I got to watch. Oh my goodness. Two important points real quick here. Yeah, go too. ahead, Brian. Well, all right. I want to point out something here fast first from you're going to find this in Herodotus, book seven, uh, verse 62. And Archimedes, or commander, long ago, the Medes had been called Arians, A R A A N S, by everyone until the Medea of Colchis came up to them from Athens, and then, at least according to what the Medes themselves say, they too turn and change their names. Now, folks, they're telling you they're Arians from, well, Afghanistan. We covered this. Now, listen to this. The Kurdish language is a West Iranian language related to Persian and Pashto. Okay, what is Pashto? The Pashto language is, well, it's spoken by the Pashtun, and it became the national language of Afghanistan. Okay, folks, the Magi were all over the place throughout that entire region. That's what I wanted to add at lightning speed here. Well, Brian, with that, we probably need to cap this episode off. We're, we're down to seconds now. Um, so absolutely amazing, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, please check out my new blog, signofthesonofman.wordpress.com. Of course, endtimetribune.blogspot.com. I'm going to try to put the 
timelines up there tomorrow. Uh, Bry is on overattentionshow.com. Please check him out. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And, of course, our third uh, cohort, of course, uh, Clinton Co-Watch. You can find him at clintoncowatch.com. You can find him on Twitter. He's on Facebook. But, uh, yeah, you might want to go check out my new page because that's where uh, I'll be doing my public uh, discussions about the Bible, God's Holy Word. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless. Godspeed.